Hello, welcome to the University of Brighton podcast. I'm Richard Newman. This is episode 112 of the podcast, which catches up with academic staff and students at the university to chat to them about their work. My guest this week is Dr. Holly Chard, Senior Lecturer in Contemporary Screen Media. Holly's main research interest is on the films of the late John Hughes. She's written a book about him too. Now, I'm a huge fan of his films. I'm sure many of you are too. And with Christmas around the corner, this is just the right time to talk about him. So Holly, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. It's great to have you on. Thank um, you, Richard. So as always, we, we start the podcast by just getting to know you a little bit better. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about your background and your work at the uni? Yeah, of course. Um, so as you said, I'm, I'm a lecturer in contemporary screen media. Um, I teach mainly on the uh, BA Honours Film course, which is a course that combines a mixture of kind of uh, practice and kind of hands-on filmmaking with learning about the kind of contemporary film industry, a bit of film theory and analysis as well. And I kind of teach the theory analysis and industry stuff uh, on that course, which is brilliant. And um, we get a really great mix of students on that. On that. Um, so that's kind of day to day what I do. And like you say, I've, I've just had my book about John Hughes come out. And a lot of my research is really about kind of popular culture mm. uh, and particularly American films and TV since the 1980s. That's kind of mm -hmm. what I'm really interested in. And, you know, always love talking about with people. Yeah, great. Um, it, it, really interesting course for you to, to teach on too. I mean, for anyone that is thinking about coming to the university, what is it about Brighton that stands out for you? Okay, I think obviously one of the strengths of the course is the mix of, of kind of theoretical learning and, and production. But in terms of Brighton this itself, it's a brilliant city to be a student in. There's so much to do. It's also a brilliant city to be a filmmaker in as well. There's lots of creative people, lots of events happening all the time. Obviously, at the moment, a few, a few, a few events aren't, aren't happening, but uh, in general, lots going on. Also, great in terms of shooting locations for filmmaking. You've got the beach, you can go down to the cliffs, you've got the countryside, you've got city, you've got suburbs, you've got modern buildings, Victorian, etc. So it's like a really great place to be making movies, connecting with people, and kind of just growing up and getting to know who you are and what kind of filmmaker you want to be, or maybe what other kind of areas of film or media you might be interested in kind of pursuing after uni. Yeah. Great. Um, so your interest in John Hughes, you've written the yeah. book Mainstream Maverick, John Hughes and New Hollywood Cinema. Where does your interest in him stem from? Okay, so uh, the first thing to say is this is a project that had an incredibly long gestation period. <laughs> so I started researching John Hughes when I did my master's, which was in 2007, 2008. So quite a long time ago. Um, and I kind of started looking at his films because I, I, by accident, was looking at a lot of the kind of family films and comedies I liked as a kid on IMDb. And I noticed that the same writer and often producer, John Hughes, was attached to them. And I thought, this is kind of interesting, okay. Um, and it kind of spun out from there, really. And obviously, he's really well known uh, for his teen films. But for me, as a kind of older millennial, it's like the films like Home Alone and stuff that kind of really introduced me to his work. Um, so that's kind of how it started. It's obviously been over a decade, <laughs> which is terrifying when I think about <laughs> it. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of it's just fueled by my interest in kind of basically the movies that people actually watch and the movies that people kind of remember and have become 
kind of part of the fabric of our of our culture and our lives and you know a lot of people know these films and have really fond memories of them so it's mm. kind of looking at it from a more academic perspective yeah i think from uh just just from an enjoyment point of view from my i think as an older millennial myself exactly the same i think you get you start watching you watch john hughes and um Miracle on 34th Street when you're a kid you think that is the Miracle on 34th Street obviously um, and and um, and then and then as you get older like going through his back catalogue and just just yeah. so much stuff um, which we're going to come to in a minute but just the obviously we're recording this on the 1st of December so we can now legitimately feel a bit Christmassy um, yeah so um, what is it about this? there's a massive association with John Hughes and Christmas um, yeah. Home Alone, Miracle on 34th Street, the remake with Richard Attenborough, um, National Lampoon, um, even like last week it was Thanksgiving and you've got planes, trains and automobiles. It's got a real association with this time of year in general, hasn't he? Sort of become part of the festive furniture. Absolutely, yeah. And, and, and even the films that aren't set at Christmas or in the holidays, they tend to be shown around this time of year as well. I think a couple of reasons, I would say. Um, Firstly, a lot of his films from the late 80s onwards were about families and obviously the festive season is a time where families come together and you can generate an awful lot of kind of humour from that as we'll probably talk about. And also a lot of nice heartwarming sentiment, which is one of the kind of key features of a lot of his movies. It's like they always have a nice happy ending. Um, and also he was very commercially savvy and basically realised if you set a film at Thanksgiving or at Christmas, <laughs> it will be shown on TV every single year. Um, and so there was a kind of commercial angle to this too, basically, of, of figuring out, oh, okay, actually, these films will have a really long legacy on TV and at the time video and then DVD and stuff. Um, so yeah, there was, there's a kind of mul multiple reasons why this happened, but yeah, it's really interesting they've still endured. Mm. Uh, but I mean, it's all very well, having that idea and knowing that it could be that, that, that could yeah. work but if we really go back through the last 30 years or so how many really good Christmas films are there and then how many of them end up being having an association with John Hughes it's not it's not easy to make a a good Christmas film no I mean I think obviously Elf is probably the mm. one that stands out to me as, as kind of one of the ones that, yeah. that's got but that, even that was uh, that like status, 10 15 but, years ago yeah yeah exactly yeah they're kind of few and far between mm. um and I think yeah like clearly it's not it, it's a weird alchemy and we maybe talk about this in relation to home alone like there's a mm. lot of different elements that kind of came together some that I think were rooted in his and his collaborators talents some that were kind of a little bit right place right time okay. managing to kind of bring it all together as well let's talk about home alone now then shall we um because uh, I, I think it's obviously it, it i think for a lot of people that's his most famous film uh, just a huge success and obviously went on to um several sequels and we're going to get another one as well which i get your thoughts on um in a in a moment one of the <laughs> i can't think of many films that don't need to be remade but there there is one um yeah. but what is it about everything that came together with home alone that made that such a success okay. I mean, there are so many brilliant interviews of the people who worked on it, um, both kind of at the time, but in, in recent times, because obviously we've had the 30-year uh, anniversary in, in November when it came out. Um, and I think you've got John Hughes, who wrote it, and he produced it, and he was um, very adamant about getting it made. So um, it's famously one of those movies where Warner Brothers were the original studio, 
and basically had a big argument with Hughes um, and the director Chris Columbus over the budget. They wanted them to cut it by a couple of million dollars and they just said, no, we can't make the film we want to make. So they went to 20th Century Fox uh, and then it went to become this massive hit. So very famous for, for that aspect. But I think in terms of the kind of story elements and, and it all coming together, you've got, let's say, Hughes, the writer and producer, who by this point had already been very successful um, with his teen films, but also kind of more, I guess, family films and comedy films with things like Uncle Buck, um, Planes, Trains and Automobiles, that kind of thing. Um, Chris Columbus, who as a director, wasn't hugely experienced, but had also written films like The Goonies uh, under the kind of uh, mentorship of Steven Spielberg. So you've, and you've got a director who's very good at working with young performers as well. That's why they chose him, Chris Columbus, to direct the first Harry Potter film. Mm -hmm. uh, you've then also got brilliant production designer, John Muto, who creates that whole kind of very festive aesthetic of the film, which I think mm -hmm. looks still looks really good, even though it's like 30 years old. Mm -hmm. um, and the other person that really, well, there's two other people off the top of my head that really said <laughs> it, um, Helio Macat, who is the cinematographer on the film, and again, was a big part of like the aesthetic of it looking nice and having that kind of child's perspective mm -hmm. on Christmas and on the kind of events of the film. And then finally, the big thing I think is Freddie Heiss, who is the stunt coordinator on the movie. And like Home Alone would be nothing <laughs> without all of that slapstick, particularly in the kind of final sort of climactic bit of the film where he sets up all the booby traps and stuff. And, and apparently all of the people kind of making the film at the time said they felt there was something about it, like it all just sort of came together and you had some great performers in it as well. And it just, it worked. And, and that's so rare in Hollywood. Like they have so many ideas that seem brilliant on paper yeah. and then become massive flops. And then you've got this movie that was made for less than sort of $20 million. And then it goes on to become the highest grossing comedy of all time. And yeah, it took a lot of people by surprise, but actually in hindsight, all those ingredients were there. How much of it as well comes down to getting a bit lucky with the casting of Macaulay Culkin? Because, I mean, you can't imagine any, any other kid doing it. And, and it's, it's, that it's him that kind of makes it really, doesn't it, to sort of stitch it all together? Yeah, yeah I think, and that was, uh, yeah, that was like partly luck, partly uh, Hughes had worked with him on Uncle Buck, mm. uh, where he played John Candy's nephew. And there was a particular scene where he does that kind of interrogation of John Candy and yeah. asks him all these fire questions. Yeah. And that was one of the scenes that kind of stuck with John Hughes. And they did all these auditions for kids for Home Alone. And then it was kind of like actually Macaulay Culkin is the best fit. And he was quite experienced by that as well, relatively speaking, in terms of working on films. But he does just have a kind of charisma, mm. certainly at that age. I think it, it kind of wanes as he gets older and he becomes a bit, uh, less cute. Yeah. I think there's kind of an element of how kind of cute and innocent he looks and that obviously juxtaposed with him blowtorching Joe Pesci and, and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, and he, he uh, by all accounts, was sort of very good at taking on board direction and, you know, working with the adults in the film as well. So yeah. And Joe Pesci was banned from swearing, which was oh, really hard. <laughs> why he makes all those kind of like noises that are like, yeah. really angry, but aren't actual swear words. Yeah, they almost sound like sort of cartoony, don't they? The sort yeah. of the sounds he makes. Um, we're going we're gonna to have a focus a little bit later on about the uh, John Hughes sort of more... Um, earlier work in terms of the stuff that really set him up, the, the teen films. Mm. And just sticking with the sort of more 
the more family films that he was making um, mm. at, at this point and all the Christmas films that he was making. There's a real, um, it feels a lot of the films, they don't feel like the same film, but they all feel very similar or that they're really related to each other. You said about Uncle Buck there with Macaulay Culkin, it just feels like, um, it feels like the Home Alone film you can watch at any time of year, Uncle Buck. Yeah. Uh, and then Planes, Trains and Automobiles feels like one, like it's kind of like a more adult version of mm. Home Alone. This again, yeah. it's, a bit, it's a bit slapstick, but it's for adults with swearing in it, especially that yeah. fantastic scene with the car rental. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, um, but they, they do kind of all have a similar kind of style, don't they? He had a very distinct writing yeah. style. Yeah, I think, um, so yeah, like he definitely has a very, a kind of, yeah, like you say, clear sort of uh, approach to stories and to characters and a kind of style of comedy that he tends to lean towards. Um, I think uh, Planes, Trains and Waterbills is actually brilliant in terms of a lot of the dialogue and, and it, it, it kind of reminiscent of a lot of like screwball comedy and, and kind of particularly the interaction between Steve Martin and John Candy throughout the film, that kind of back and forth, odd couple dynamic on the road is, is, is brilliant. Um, and as I've already sort of touched on, I think it's that ability as well to kind of tap into sentiment which sometimes verges on sentimentality, but kind of delivers on that kind of heartwarming uh, side of things as well. And I think that was really helped, particularly in the films with John Candy, with him as a star, he's, he's very kind of sympathetic. He's someone that people root for as well, mm. I think. Um, and yeah, again, there's, there's a kind of alchemy that happens when you get these kind of collaborations in, in, in kind of films. Um, and yeah, and, and again, Hughes was very good at, at kind of working, figuring out what worked mm. and then kind of recycling it. And I don't mean that in like necessarily a disparaging way, mm -hmm. but he kind of identified, well, this is what people like about my movies. This is what entertains them. We'll do more of the same. And, you know, in interviews, he said that that was part of his strategy. He, he wants people, if they're going to see a John Hughes film, he wants them to get a John Hughes film. Yeah. And um, just while we come back to the sort of family values bit in just a moment, while we're just mm. touching on John Candy, I mean, like Hughes died fairly young. Um, mm. And uh, I, everyone loves John Candy, don't they? That they watch. I mean, he's yeah. like you say, you can, you, can, you can root for him. You always feel sorry for him, but he's also stupidly funny. Um, mm. What was it about his, him that make him, made him so talented? And um, do you think he would have gone on to, to continue doing very similar work? Yeah, I mean, that's a really, really hard question to answer. I think um, he, from what you can, because obviously you don't, you don't know what celebrities are like in real life, but um, from what you can tell of John Candy, whenever he did interviews on stuff like Letterman and things, he was an incredibly sort of modest, self-deprecating guy. Um, he was very Canadian, um, by which I mean, he, he sort of was very proud of his Canadian identity. He invested in like a hockey team. He did his own radio show in Canada and stuff. And he kind of always managed to keep this sort of like every man guy you can invite around for a beer kind of uh, vibe. Even when he was hugely famous, he never really seemed very kind of Hollywood or indeed very comfortable with being famous. And I think um that's kind of part of what i guess from what i understand again you'd have to ask mm. his people who knew him but yeah. he kind of struggled with that and i think that was a factor in kind of the health problems he had and so on mm. so it's really hard to sort of say what would have happened i mean I'd, i think 
it's interesting that you have kind of similar performers like John Goodman who've kind of graduated to these more kind of elder statesman kind of roles and do a mixture of comedy and serious stuff mm. so I think perhaps if he had kind of you know lived to, mm. to now he'd probably be more in that kind of area playing yeah. uh, potentially the grandfather now rather than just the mm. dad or the uncle um, but yeah I mean it's I think a lot of people have speculated that, that Candy's death was one of the reasons why Hughes stepped away from Hollywood yeah. in the late 90s because mm. he kind of felt like he'd lost his friend who really struggled with kind of the fame of it all. Yeah. We're going to come back to that as well a little bit later about where John Hughes sort of finishing his career in Hollywood sort of fairly early. Um, let's go back to Christmas. The, um, <laughs> yeah, sorry, uh, I keep forgetting it's the Christmas one. No, no, because it's, it's just so many interesting things. I find it really interesting. Um, uh, Miracle on 34th Street mm. was an incredibly popular, um, festive favourite, um, yeah. black and white film, obviously, originally. And, you know, almost, well, it's very, you can, you can kind of watch them side by side and they're, they're quite similar, but then there's kind of John Hughesy bits in the Miracle on 34th, the newer version mm. of it with Richard Attenborough. Again, just like incredible casting where uh, you, you just, he, if you sort of close your eyes and picture a real, Father Christmas. It's uh, it's yeah. it's probably Richard Attenborough, isn't it? Yeah. And he really got. He really. I mean, he that that this is that is the old again. Just really focusing on like his his incredible ability to capture that festive spirit. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think what what was quite interesting is yeah, like you say, they, the the story fundamentally stays the same. Um, and there's a few kind of hughesy elements. There's a bit of slapstick. Um, he kind of changed the en ending, which is quite interesting, actually. Um, maybe come back to that. But um, yeah, Richard Attenborough was, uh, yeah, I can't think of better casting in that role. And um, also, I think the a moment that a lot of people remember is the one with the girl who, who's deaf and he does the sign language. Mm. And uh, apparently that they hadn't told the little girl, the little actress who came in to do that, who is deaf, who's deaf in real life, mm -hmm. that he was going to do that. And so all wow. of that reaction is genuine. And yeah, it's like, he obviously had a real talent as an actor mm. for kind of getting that, that emotional connection with the other people on set as well. Mm. And him and uh, Mara Wilson as well, the main little girl in the film, who is now uh, awesome adults right you should follow her on twitter yeah yeah um, her yeah. book's brilliant as well um again they have a real connection and yeah in, like yeah to me totally like in my mind father christmas is, is Richard <laughs> and yeah <laughs> it, you know, it's, it's just like um it almost goes back to what we were talking about with john candy he's got these he obviously likes to work with people who you can root for and you almost feel an element of feeling almost like sorry for them. You just want to go and give them a hug, don't you? So it's uh, John Candy, Richard Attenborough. Mm -hmm. So even working with people like Robin Williams later on, like yeah. Flubber, which is not the best film in my mind, but it's, yeah. but anyway, <laughs> <laughs> but it's kind of the similar kind of thing. He works with these big names that, um, yeah. that you kind of really, yeah, you do root for. Yeah, and I think um, it, it's probably testament to his his kind of talents as a writer and a producer um, that he managed to get all these people on board to make his films. And there was obviously um, something in it for them as performers. You know, they obviously felt like they could do something 
uh, with the work and the kind of characters that, that he'd given them. And by all accounts, when he was directing, and obviously he didn't actually direct that many films, no. like he didn't actually direct Miracle on 34th mm. Street um, or the Home Alone films, for example. No. But when he did, he would let the actors kind of workshop things. He'd just let the camera roll. He was notoriously bad for uh, recording loads and loads and loads of footage. Mm-hmm. and then kind of uh, basically giving the film shape in the edit. So mm-hmm. he'd always been very kind of centred on performers and giving them what they needed and giving them enough freedom with the script and the characters to kind of develop mm-hmm. it as well, mm-hmm. um, which also I think is a factor with John Candy. Like he would just let Candy improvise on certain scenes and kind of develop what he'd kind of set in motion and kind mm-hmm. of stood back and just let him, you know, do what he could do. Mm. going back to the end of miracle on 34th street then when you said the yeah. changing changing the ending you said you yeah to come back to that what were your what were your thoughts on that oh so in the original um the way they prove that that uh, santa claus is real is that he's recognized by the u.s postal service and that's kind of like a, the legal argument they make is he's recognized mm. by the u.s postal service therefore he is a real person mm-hmm. is him John Hughes' version does something different. Um, It kind of taps much more into a kind of, I would say, Christian kind of belief uh, in in faith, basically. Mm. There's there's, there's quite a a touching speech that Richard Attenborough's character gives to um, Elizabeth Perkins' character, which is about, you know, you can't take things on faith. Mm. What's the point? Um, and the whole kind of climax of the film is all these different people putting up posters and signs, including major corporations, incidentally. <laughs> the religious thing happens where basically Myra Wilson, very cute in the court, walks up to the, the judge with a Christmas card. Mm. And in it, there's a dollar bill and encircled God we trust. And so they're basically like, if the US Treasury can mm. say that we believe in God and we trust in God, then we can believe in Father Christmas. <laughs> and that's kind of... yeah. Like the film, with broadly, Hughes is kind of broadly middle Americans of small C conservative values that he went for that kind of angle of faith and and kind of as to say a kind of Christian angle, the legal kind of argument for Father Christmas. National Lampoon, that's one I can't yeah. get on board with as much, and I don't know why. I, I I don't know whether it's because it's a bit too slapsticky for me, or. Mm. Or whether it, it always feels like a grown like um a grown up version of Home Alone without it being funny enough for me, and I don't know why it is because I love every single John Hughes film and National Lampoon. I just don't get. Yeah. Is, there, is there something different about it or not, or is it just me? Yeah, I think I think so. No, I think um, obviously the the style of humour of National Lampoon. If we go back to like the original vacation which was uh, 1983 which is kind of one of Hughes breakthrough films as a screenwriter um it's well it's it's kind of a lot cruder um it's a, a kind of quite a kind of bro frat boy kind of humor um the original vacation mm. um and some of it is actually quite mean as well in, in the original in the original film in terms of who they're laughing at um by the uh, christmas vacation film um it's kind of i think it falls between two stools like it's trying to be a bit more family friendly Mm. um 
uh, but at the same time kind of has some of that sort of like slightly more outlandish um, National Lampoon humour and I think Chevy Chase was kind of at a point in his career where he was kind of phoning it in to be honest and uh, Hughes had very little to do with the actual production he basically wrote the screenplay and stuck his name on it as a producer and just kind of let them Mm. get on with it and and make it Um, and it's all filmed on a studio lot as well so there's like no authentic locations you'll notice that even though it's supposed to be freezing cold Mm. (laughs) then like there's no like breath in the air or anything like that it looks very stagey Mm. um and yeah i I think it just doesn't know who its audience are Mm. you can see the hughesian elements in terms of like the family dysfunction and the sort of slightly um neurotic kind of father figure who's kind of gradually descending into madness as as christmas approaches um and actually i think as well like cousin eddie who is um the kind of trailer trash relative who has that line that i probably can't say on the podcast that's quite iconic when he's emptying the toilet from his uh rv um has has kind of gone from this kind of satirical character to this kind of hillbilly comedy figure um it doesn't all hold together brilliantly i mean i i like elements of it i do kind of like the final scene where the SWAT team jumps in the house and um you know it all kind Mm. of gets really chaotic Mm. but yeah i see what you mean like i don't think it it, it's not really a proper family film i wouldn't feel comfortable showing it to kids (laughs) and then at the same time it doesn't have the depth to really kind of be a, a film for adults either it, it's kind of neither one thing nor the other and as i say i think it, it, chevy chase was better in some of his earlier work mm. um and yeah i think it, it, it's quite uh yeah there's something missing and i think mm. also even when it tries to sort of bring in the sentiment it just feels really cloying and forced mm. like at the end of the film or there's a bit um where Chevy Chase reads, you know, it was the night before Christmas yeah. when we're supposed to be on board with it. And it's just, it doesn't land at no. all. No, um, I agree. So yeah, and it's it's kind of, it came out around the same time as Uncle Buck as well, which kind of hits the mark much more. And I think there's, it's kind of an interesting contrast really there. Yeah, it's my cousin's favourite um, Christmas film. I don't agree with her. I don't, don't quite get it. Uh, uh, do you, <laughs> just um, in general, how much does the American Dream sort of feature in these in these films? The the, the common theme seems to be um, these are. I mean, these are all mainly rich white men being in the, the main characters in this, um, living in huge houses, um, often with big families as well. I mean, these houses are just insane, aren't they? Yeah. Uh, especially the Home Alone house. Um, but kind of, I guess all of them, again, back to Planes, Trains, Automobiles, it looks like exactly the same house, doesn't it? Um, uh, and again, maybe even in um, National Lampoon's Christmas, like the, the, that, that looked pretty similar. <laughs> so yeah, um, yeah. it's always very similar. It's kind of, um, he's always, that, it, always, it always looks the same. It's always the same sort of yeah. focus. Oh yeah, absolutely. Like a, a very much a kind of uh, filmmaker of suburban America. And he really taps into that kind of American post-war suburban kind of imagery um but like you say actually as his films go on the characters seem to get richer and richer <laughs> and like yeah uncle buck plains plains automobiles home alone they all live in these enormous houses in um they're chicago's uh, north shore suburbs so they are very affluent very white 
uh, kind of places and his films in general are very white uh, racially um, and yeah like um, I think the American dream in terms of wealth uh, and the kind of aspirations around that is very much on display um also like you say the kind of family values aspect of it as well of like these are not just families with parents and kids but they seem to have loads of kids yeah and all this kind of extended family as well um and yeah you you tend not to see kind of alternatives to that the only film that you do see that in uh that's well known of, of Hughes's films that's really visible is Curly Sue um but the whole point of that film, which is about uh, a young girl who's kind of homeless and is, is kind of a grifter with her kind of, um, we don't really know if he's her dad, he's just mm. her caregiver, I guess, and he's also homeless and they're kind of conning everyone. It's, it's kind of a ripoff of uh, Paper Moon with mm. Tate O'Neill. But anyway, <laughs> um, but in that film, it's like, it's a single parent family, essentially, non-conventional family, but the whole drive of the movie is to kind of make a traditional family and for them to then move in with the really rich loyal woman <laughs> and it's kind of like mm. that is very much set up as the ideal same in Miracle on 34th Street yeah. to be fair mm -hmm. single mother who you know we understand from the dialogue ex-husband who was an alcoholic who left her and it's all about getting her together with Dylan McDermott's character and like literally getting her to a church and getting yeah. her married. <laughs> and then at the end as well, it's like <laughs> yeah. the, what Father Christmas gets them is this like, um, again, this enormous, ridiculously <laughs> expensive suburban house filled with loads of expensive stuff. And mm -hmm. that is very much like, it's not even a subtext in the films. It's, it's very much foregrounded of like, yeah, this is the American dream. It's a it's a big family. It's a big house. It's nice stuff. Um, definitely, yeah. I'm um, going back to um, Home Alone. Um, first, just what something we talked about off air, but when we were preparing for this, is again you've talked about already. It's like he was really good at marketing films and and, and picking the right times of year to um, to make them. Um, and and the, the so they're very commercially successful, but also in terms of the sort of merchandise that came with it, the, uh, the Home Alone 2 is basically the same film as Home Alone, the original film, but the um, sort of, what was the cassette sort of the... the, cassette the top, yeah. yeah, that, that I mean, it became a big thing. And um, it actually lasted for a little bit longer, didn't it? Because yeah. I, I, yeah. It's, I, was I was too young for Home Alone 2, probably when it first came out, just about. But I can remember having, having a second wave and wanting it for Christmas. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So basically, originally the film um, Hughes had worked in advertising before he went into movies. So he had that way of thinking about things. And uh, with Home Alone Two, like you say, it's more or less. It was at the time called a kind of carbon copy. You just move it to New York, and that's mm. kind of what gives the novelty. And everything's bigger. Uh, but with the Talkboy cassette recorder, that was part of a partnership with Tiger Electronics and Games which were a company based in, in Chicago and Illinois um, that made kids toys, uh, particularly electronic games. And, and they came up with this cassette player recorder thing. Um, and not only is it, is it featured in the film, it's actually very much crucial to several plot points. So yeah. the reason he gets separated from his parents at the airport is he's putting batteries mm. into the, 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 the toy. Um, the reason he gets booked into the Plaza Hotel is he uses the voice manipulation on it to check in over the phone. 
Um, he then manages to record the confession of the wet bandits. That they're going to steal their charity money and kill him yeah. <laughs> on it. And it becomes this kind of like really crucial part of the story. Um, and at the time, it was massively uh, controversial, very much attacked um, by a lot of parents groups. Um, there were a lot of comment pieces in newspapers that were very much against this kind of basically product placement, but it was very much embedded into the narrative. However, kids loved it. Um, and like you say, it, it was uh, one of the kind of top 10 Christmas toys for several years yeah, afterwards, yeah. kind of the late 90s. Um, and they obviously bought out different versions as well. So they kind of had the original Talk Boys and then the Talk Boy Deluxe, and then they did the Talk Girl that was like pink, and then they did the pens and the watch, and they kind of managed to spin that out for probably the best part of a decade, um, truth be told. And I think one of the reasons it works as well, though, is it, it does have a practical function. Like if you're buying your kids an expensive toy that's from a movie, at least this could play cassettes and could record stuff like it did something and I think that was part of, of why it was successful as well it's like not just a bit of plastic yeah I wonder whether Kevin grew up to become a, an audio and video editor because he has an uncanny knack of being able to rewind back to exactly the right point doesn't he um uh, just just before we move on then um about Home Alone and the uh the the remake that them that yeah. they're bringing out soon is it next year maybe i think it was meant to be was it meant to be this year originally it was meant to be this year yeah, yeah. the pandemic and it, like for a 30th anniversary can't think of a worse 30th anniversary present than remaking a film doesn't need to be remade but what are your thoughts on it is it gonna um, work probably not uh i always think it's a bad idea to remake films that have kind of classic status i just think uh, you're you're setting yourself up for a fall um although that's somewhat ironic given what we were saying about Marathon 84 Street. But I think also it's not surprising in that um, one of the reasons Disney bought 20th Century Fox was to buy all of their intellectual property and all of the rights to their successful films and TV shows. And so one of the first things Disney's basically done is they've gone, okay, what from the back catalogue uh, uh, that we've got, that we've bought from Fox was successful? Okay, how can we do things with that and see if we can reboot these kind of IPs? So in that sense, in terms of kind of contemporary Hollywood's business practices, it's not remotely surprising, but I doubt it will be successful. Nearly everyone involved in the original has said it's a terrible idea. Yeah. <laughs> Don't remake it. Yeah. Um, and I think as well, like, again, it's just, as I said, there were all these different elements that came together. And I consider it highly unlikely that that same kind of, bringing together of, 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 of the kind of the sum of the parts is much you know yeah what am i trying to say yeah, mixing be, metaphor interesting to see how <laughs> how it works i was just trying to have a look through the um the the, the cast now and you know bob delaney is there is a it's a funny guy and uh eddie kemp is brilliant in the office but i just can't see yeah. we, we won't even have the john williams music either um um okay so um just um i want to go back um further then to the the teen films that he made mm. uh, just how much did he change the way that those kind of films are made or, or created that kind of genre yeah. i mean he is widely credited and yeah kind of completely reorienting the genre really um historically teen films had kind of been male dominated. Like when you think about the kind of ones that stick out from like the fifties, like Rebel Without a Cause or the Wild One, or 
kind of going into the sort of 70s and 80s with like the sort of horror films and sex comedies and stuff it like something like Porky's which was kind of yeah you know it's all about guys trying to have sex with girls um there just weren't very many films that were told from a female point of view or that had male characters that were particularly likable or sympathetic and so kind of one of the breakthroughs really with films like 16 Candles uh, with Molly Ringwald and then The Breakfast Club and uh, Pretty in Pink and, and those kind of movies was that you had kind of the female characters that were interesting that were allowed to sort of have opinions and do things and it kind of wasn't about sex necessarily it was often about romance you've also got kind of more sympathetic geeky male characters particularly played by Anthony Michael Hall who you know for a long time if you were academic in kind of one of these films you would just be like a stereotypical nerd with like big glasses and you know you're the butt of the joke um, whereas his films were kind of much more thoughtful um, and much more concerned with kind of moving beyond a lot of sort of teenage stereotypes and I think that's why particularly The Breakfast Club is kind of still very much celebrated uh, as a kind of breakthrough movie just in terms of it's you know it's, it's five kids just talking to each other basically for the whole film it's kind of more like a play than a movie in a lot of ways it's a very um, it's a, that feels like a very it feels like a very John Hughes film and a very Richard Linklater film in the same way they're like yeah, they're, they're yeah. both they're both very, they've, they've both had their um, very obvious stamp on them don't they yeah yeah absolutely and and um kind of it's it's what I find interesting is obviously there were kind of limitations of what he did so although he broke kind of ground in terms of as I say the female characters and the geeky male characters and stuff uh and kind of having teenagers that have feelings obviously they were still all very white very yeah. suburban um American but what I think is really interesting is that then in the last like 20 years loads of indie filmmakers and filmmakers kind of working in less commercial movies have referenced him as an influence so like Greta Gerwig with Lady Bird Diablo Cody when she wrote Juno basically said like these films massively influenced me so what I find interesting is that he kind of created a template that was quite kind of mainstream but created a few more opportunities and that people have kind of taken those ideas and run with them and done mm. their own things with them. I think that's probably partly why his kind of influence endures is, is that, as I say, the films themselves had an impact at the time, but you mm. can kind of see in so many kind of youth and teen films and TV now, mm. a lot of those kind of tropes and a lot of those characters that you can kind of go back to, to his work and, yeah. and see um Hughes died in 2009 is that right he was 59 um but he hadn't yeah. been active really for quite a long time before that actually I mean the body of his work really was what in his 20s and 30s is that right most of yeah, it in his 30s I guess or um yeah. so do you is, is that you touched on earlier on do you is, mm. is that John Candy death potentially uh, did that play a, a big a big role in that uh, I mean, it's kind of cited as one of the factors, but to be honest, I think he just lost interest in it. <laughs> like, right. um, mm. uh, he, so basically what happened was he did all these sort of, he did Home Alone, that was hugely successful. Home Alone 2 was quite successful. Uh, he did other family films that were always trying to like replicate that success and mm. were often viewed as disappointments at the box office, even though like Miracle on 34th Street, for example, didn't 
didn't do very well at the box office originally. Okay. Um, they even did this offer, like you could get your money back if you didn't like the film. Right, okay. <laughs> Try and get people to go. Um, but it was really successful in video, actually. Um, but basically, he was always trying to write the next Home Alone. It didn't really happen. Um, he partnered up with Disney to do 101 Dalmatians and Flubber. Mm. But by that point was essentially kind of sending them the script and doing a bit of the producer stuff, but not hands on. And then after that, it kind of he there's always rumors that he's going to make such and such a film. So there was a rumor he was going to do some kind of Peter Pan film. There was a rumor he was going to do a film called The Bee, about a man and a bee and uh, all these other kind of movies that just never happened. Um, and yeah, I think partly he also fell out by all accounts uh, with the guy that he set up, Great Oaks, which was his production company, had the deal with Disney 3. So that was a factor. Um, but yeah, I get the feeling from um, kind of interviews. That, so there was a, a great interview in Vanity Fair after he died, where they spoke to his family and his archive and stuff, um, was that he, yeah, he just kind of got fed up with it and <laughs> decided right. he would much rather just live in his nice big house in the Chicago suburbs, <laughs> listen to music, mm. draw, write, and not do it for anyone else and I mm. think that was it but I think people kind of assume there must be this like big story behind it mm. but I think it was just like he just kind of had enough of it really but yeah. that's my read on it I mean okay. the, the people who know obviously his family but uh, but yeah certainly they've said his family Don Candy's family have said like his death was was a, was a part mm. of it as well of him taking that step back from Hollywood and moving He'd already moved back to Illinois, but he'd kind of decided I wasn't gonna, he wasn't going to move to California again. Okay. He wasn't going to become part mm. of that mm. uh, world. Okay. Um, okay, so, so, so finishing off, what's your favourite John Hughes film? Uh, I have two. Okay. Uh, Home Alone yeah. is still hilarious. Mm -hmm. um, and um, always, you know, always have to watch it at Christmas. Mm. Um, watching it with my particularly my family my dad and my brother will giggle at home alone <laughs> and they think it's hilarious uh, which just makes me laugh because yeah bring, bring um <laughs> and then my other favorite film of his teen films is pretty in pink uh just because it has an amazing soundtrack um and also james spader uh is in it and is really to be objective, totally objective, uh, it's really hot in it. And uh, there's a lot of lingering kind of close-ups on James Spader looking really awful and sleazy and preppy, but like so perfectly 1980s. Uh, but as I say, it's got this kind of amazing new wave um, kind of post-punk soundtrack as well. Um, so those are those are my two favourite John Hughes films. Cool. That it's been really, it's been really great fun like going through all these. I could probably talk about this for a lot lot longer um but hopefully that's got people in the mood to get through some of the christmas john hughes back catalog um before we go we finish every podcast with the same questions to every guest just before we finish first one what advice would you give to your younger self um it would probably be to not put so much pressure on yourself i'm a bit of a perfectionist and so i think to try and give myself less less of a hard time and to like learn to live in the moment more and to enjoy what you've got now and i think actually for all of us like 2020 we've all had to kind of start to try and appreciate uh, what's what's in front of us rather than you know what's ahead necessarily cool uh, um if you could study any other course at brighton what would it be um 
So unfortunately, we don't do any courses in brewing or distilling because that would be my choice because I absolutely <laughs> love craft beer. Um, I think probably if I had to like just do something else, I'd probably mm -hmm. look at something like primary education, actually. Um, mm -hmm. I'd be really interested to learn about kind of yeah. teaching young kids and stuff. So yeah. yeah, and we've got great courses on that here. So yeah. yeah. Um, do you pick a favourite place in Sussex? Yes, um, I will always have a soft spot for Worthing because it's where I grew up. Uh, I've also lived there several years when I was an adult as well. And it's just kind of, I find it very calming <laughs> being in Worthing. It's kind of reassuringly consistent and the same. Um, and it's, yeah, it's a very different vibe to Brighton. I love Brighton. I love living here. Mm. But there's something about Worthing that I find very soothing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, tell us something about yourself that a lot of people may not know. Um, I really I struggle to think of this, but I suppose one thing I will admit to, and this is kind of related to the festive season, mm -hmm. is that I am incredibly competitive at board games <laughs> to the point where I'm banned playing them with my partner's family because I get too competitive and he finds it really embarrassing. Um, <laughs> Are so, you a yeah. cheat or do you always play by the rules? I know that's the problem. I'm real stickler for the rules right. and I think I make it all very stressful for everyone else involved. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, it doesn't, it, it doesn't bring out a good side of me, especially once I've had a couple of Proseccos on Christmas Day. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's dark. Uh, so <laughs> I've been banned from, from doing that now. Um, and finally, if you could invite three people to dinner, um, excluding family, so past or present or yeah. fancy dinner party, who would they be and why? Graham Norton. I think you always need someone who would kind of lubricate the conversation and get mm -hmm. people talking and have lots of anecdotes. And obviously Graham Norton would be brilliant at that. Mm -hmm. I would also love to have Kylie Minogue because um, I would really hope, she seems lovely, but mm -hmm. also really hope that at the end of the night we would do karaoke together and I could sing with Kylie. And then also I'd quite like to have Michaela Cole uh, come because she's a brilliant writer. And I also think she's very funny as well. And I think she'd be like a a nice uh, kind of person to invite and meet and, and find more about. So yeah, those would be my, uh, my dinner party guests. Your dinner party. Holly, it's been great having you on. Um, really had a really fun time talking to you. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much. You've had some brilliant questions and yeah, <laughs> we could probably both talk about this for much longer. <laughs> yeah, I think maybe, so. Maybe post pandemic we'll have to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, look, if, if, uh, remember you can catch up with uh, previous episodes anytime you like there's a huge variety there please do share and leave a review on Apple Podcasts as well thanks for listening <laughs>